Uh-oh, I left the pen right here, and now it's... Hmm. No one saw a dry erase pen this morning. Oh, okay. Well, sure, that would be very helpful. The theme of, wiz- uh, of work in Proverbs. Okay, last week we looked at our uh, inner life as one of the uh, big things that we need wisdom. And in a sense, then turning to work, we're looking at our outer life, what we do outside of our free time when we're out and about in the world. Uh, remember, looking at Proverbs in this theory, we're looking for wisdom. And wisdom is not just like, is this right or wrong, but it's about navigating the complexities of life. And we've taken the kind of uh, rough definition of wisdom as taking everything we know about God and applying it to every area of our life. Uh, Thank you, Eva and Steve. Thank you, guys. And an abundance now of of markers. Uh, Okay, so turning to the theme of work, these characters, the diligent person and the sluggard, are two of the most common characters in the book of Proverbs. So there's a lot said about work, and you're probably probably noticing by this point that uh, a lot of these things we're talking about interlock, okay? So our words and our work overlap a lot. Having words that are carefully measured when you're in the workplace help you uh, both in terms of the work you do and the way you get along with your coworkers, all those sorts of things, okay? Um, uh, if you are, uh, don't, aren't wise about your anger, that causes problems at work. Um, there's lots of proverbs about integrity and in our character, and a big part of the sort of worker God is calling us to be is a, workers who are shaped by these virtues that Proverbs commends to us. The first thing I want to do just to work our way into this, well, actually is pray, but then after that I'll tell you what the first thing we're going to do is. Uh, let's, let's pray, though. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you for the book of Proverbs and the wisdom literature in the Bible. We ask, Lord, not only that we would be increasingly righteous as Christ is at work in us through your Holy Spirit, but that we would be increasingly wise. May we live wise lives. May we be wise workers in a way that shows forth the truth of your word in the way it is applied in our lives. Where we're challenged, let us uh, submit ourselves to your word. Where we need encouragement, let us find courage. Amen. Okay, uh, I just want to briefly then set this theme of work into the broader context of the Bible. uh, And that's just going to help us a little bit with the book of Proverbs here as we turn to to work. Uh, Work in the ancient Near East, the surrounding context of Israel, um, it's interesting... uh, uh, Enuma Elish, Atrahasis, these basic creation flood stories from Mesopotamia, a recurring theme in these ancient texts is that some of the gods have to do the work. Uh, uh, okay, kids said I preached the longest ever this morning, so I'll try and keep on track here. Uh, the bottom line is in, in Mesopotamia, the rivers need drudged, so they have the lower gods drudge the rivers, and the, uh, uh, they get sick of it eventually, so then they boycott. And so then the gods make humans to do the work for them, okay? So humans are made to work so that the gods don't have to. Work is a drudgery. That's kind of the ancient view of work. 
uh, in the Greek myths, one of the things that happens when Pandora opens the box and unleashes a variety of evils in the world is that work comes out of the box, labor. What's our attitudes towards work in the modern world? Just making a living, okay, you gotta do it. Okay, something to get past, to get to retirement? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so uh, in, in those ways, in continuity with the ancient view of work as a drudgery, I think the other part is that work can very easily become an idol in the modern world. Uh, workaholics that we're trying to somehow uh, prove our significance by the work that we do. Well, what do we see when we look in the Bible about work? And I just want to narrow in on the first couple chapters of Genesis. You can turn there if you want, but probably most of us just thinking through our minds. Uh, what does God do? Does he work uh, in, in the early chapters of Genesis? He does work. What kind of work does he do? He creates things. And not only creates things, but think about how does he create humans in Genesis 2? Do you remember? That's right. He creates the humans for stewardship. But even just backing up for a second, do you remember how it says God makes humans in Genesis 2? Yeah, Eva? Yeah, he shapes the dust. God gets his hands dirty. He's working in the earth and shapes it into people and then breathes life into them. Uh, but it's, God is not afraid to get his hands dirty. And then, yeah, Dan's got this theme. Uh, humans are created for stewardship. You remember the charge they're given to uh, guard and work the garden? And this is all before sin, before the fall, all those things. Work is part of the good creation of humanity. So we're made for work. In that sense, it's similar to these other ancient myths, but it's not that God doesn't want to work so he makes us work. God works and enjoys his labor, and we are to cultivate the world and by doing so mirror the creator. So with that broad horizon in the background, let's turn to the theme of work in the book of Proverbs. And we're going to begin with uh, the very beginning of uh, the Proverbs proper in chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. So Proverbs 10, 4 and 5. Proverbs 10, 4 and 5. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Okay, that kind of is, a, in a sense, almost an overview of what Proverbs wants to say about work. It tells us two things here. Verse 4 tells us the importance of diligent work. Verse 5 tells us the importance of timely work. Okay, so diligent and timely work. In verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty. Uh, this word for slack is literally um, uh, used if, if you string a bow and you don't string it tight enough, and so the string is slack. That's the picture being used here. So, uh, uh, sorry, my voice is cracking. Uh, a slack hand, um, it's, it's careless, it's negligent, it's ineffectual. Okay? It's like shooting an arrow with a bowstring that's not tight enough. The arrow kind of goes off wherever. That's the picture of the slack hand. And what does a slack hand create or make? Poverty. 
Uh, poverty is lacking subsistence, what's necessary to live. The contrast then is the diligent hand. Uh, this word diligent means sharp, uh, thoughtful. Uh, it's, uh, to get a handle on it, if you flip forward a few pages to 13.4, uh, what is diligence opposed to there in 13.4? You see the contrast here, 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. What's the opposite of the diligent? The sluggard. But then if we flip ahead towards the end in 21.5, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes to poverty. What's the contrast to the diligent there? The hasty. So diligent, it's not being a sluggard, but it's also not being hasty. Uh, we have a modern proverb kind of along these lines. Maybe you know it. Work harder, or work smarter, not harder. <laughs> I haven't taken it to heart yet, but uh, work smarter, not harder. I mean, in a sense, that's kind of getting at what the diligent person is. There's someone who is thoughtful about their work. They are wise in their work. So it's not hasty, just running ahead without planning, but neither is it the sluggard who never gets on with the work. If we just look over uh, at, at chapter 12 briefly, 12, 24, and 27, we see two things. Uh, two things that diligence leads to. 1224, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. What does diligence lead to there? To ruling, to authority. And then in verse 27 of chapter 12, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Okay, what does diligence lead to? Precious wealth. Okay, so we're kind of getting a picture then of the diligent worker. Okay, it's neither hasty nor sluggardly. It's the route to authority and to wealth or well-being. That was 12.24 and 12.27. Um, then 10.5, not only does our work need to be diligent, uh, thoughtful, but it also needs to be timely. 10.5, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Okay, what's the idea there? Gathering in summer, that's the time to gather, to harvest. It's doing work in a timely uh, or, or in season. But on the other hand, the son who sleeps through harvest brings shame. Okay, this is part of, again, uh, uh, diligence is being, being thoughtful in your work, being wise in your work. Two comments here on, on verses 4 and 5. Uh, maybe three comments. Bruce Walkey summarizes uh, the teaching of these Proverbs uh, here that industry, contentment, thrift, and forethought are the hallmarks of the wise worker in the book of Proverbs. Industry, contentment, thrift, and forethought. 
Now, it tells us here that the hand of the diligent makes rich. In this, we, we need to be careful there. It doesn't say everyone who is rich has been diligent. Okay? If you back up just a verse or two there, what does 10.2 say? Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Okay? Some people are rich because of wickedness. So it's not saying every single rich person has therefore been diligent and is wise and you should listen to them simply because they're rich. In Proverbs, uh, wealth in and of itself is not an absolute good, but rather wealth generated by diligent, thoughtful, careful, hard work is a good thing. Wealth gained, uh, ill-begotten wealth is a bad thing. So wealth in and of itself is not an absolute good. But we recognize in our own lives and in our world that Diligent work doesn't always lead to wealth, does it? Okay, the book of Proverbs is not the only thing that the Bible has to say about wealth and work. In a sense, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the right metaphor to use here is, but uh, you think in a symphony you have the, the major theme that's in the first movement of a symphony, and then it's the... Um, whatever the other developments are called, that it's some age that work is good, and diligent work leads to wealth. But then we have these other themes. Or um, uh, if a painter's preparing a canvas, sometimes they'll paint the whole canvas in one color, a dark brown or black or something like that, and then start adding in other colors. And in a sense, Proverbs is giving us the main backdrop, okay, that work in general leads towards wealth. But then Job tells us that disasters can fall and strip you of all your wealth, right? And the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that um, uh, poor uh, rule, poor government, can destroy the wealth of a nation. Uh, Proverbs tells us that too, that a, a, a good king is good for his country, a bad king is bad for his country. So there's all these sorts of other complicating factors at play, but Proverbs sets out before us kind of the way things are meant to be, that diligent work leads to flourishing. And so in a sense, I think... Um, this is a good commentary on the book of Proverbs. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this one, Busy, Busy Town, uh, Richard Scarry. I think he has another one called What Do People Do All Day, but just about working. Um, but if you remember Busy Town, or, or maybe some of us it's fresher than others, uh, the whole thing is all the different jobs that people do. Someone drives the school bus, someone teaches the school, someone delivers the mail, on down the list, that everybody's working and everybody is flourishing. And in a sense, that's the vision that Proverbs is trying to set before us, is that if everybody's working diligently, everybody will flourish. And so it's, in a sense, Proverbs is kind of bracketing out questions of sin when it sets before us some of these things about work. And yet in 10.5, we have for the community as well. This kind of picks up. It's not just uh, in 10.5, it doesn't just say, he who gathers in summer is prudent and he who sleeps in harvest is a fool. But it says, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son. And he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Okay, by saying, identifying it as a son, it's bringing the worker into the context of the larger family. That your work has benefit to the larger family unit. In ancient Israel, uh, remember, most families would have uh, farmed common land together. And so it's saying, uh, if you're part of that small village that's farming that land together as part of your family, uh, the one who's prudent or, or who gathers in season, they're a prudent son, they benefit their community. Likewise, 
the one who sleeps in harvest is not just a foolish son, but a son who brings shame. Okay, shame is an uh, interpersonal dynamic. It's not just that he's guilty for not doing his work, but that he brings shame on his community. So our work has a larger community impact. Proverbs 18.9 makes this same point. Proverbs 18.9 tells us, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. That's interesting. It's saying being lazy about your work, being idle or negligent, is like being a cousin or a brother. It's, a, it's, a, it's kinsman to someone who destroys the game. Uh, I have too much stuff up here. In a sense, when we are uh, a, a sluggard or slack, we are in, uh, plundering our community. We're robbing them of something that they ought to have. And so our slackness in our work hurts our larger community. What kind of work does Proverbs commend then? It commends good, honest work. Okay? That's what Proverbs is talking about. Good, honest Work. If you just turn over a couple pages there to 12, 11, and 12. 12, 11, and 12. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of righteousness bears fruit. Okay, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. Uh, when the word work is used with land as an object in the Old Testament, it, talks, it means things like fertilizing your land, cultivating, tilling the soil. It's basic agrarian work, your bread and butter in the ancient world. It's not saying that's the only kind of work you can do, but it holds this up uh, in contrast to much of the ancient world. It holds up the farmer as an example of a good, honest job. This is good work. The contrast there in 12.11 is what? He who follows worthless pursuits or empty pursuits and lacks sense. What's it getting at here? It's saying that, uh, uh, as Bruce Walkie puts it, ventures and gambles that don't involve hard work or contribute to the common good are considered worthless. Okay? So following after empty things, get-rich-quick schemes, that's the kind of thing... Proverbs is targeting here. And then in verse 12-12, uh, uh, it, it gets to the heart of the matter, focusing on the motives. Whoever's wicked covets the spoils of evildoers. They're trying to get, this, these are the kind of empty pursuits. They want the riches. The root of righteousness bears fruit. Okay, the root of righteousness bears fruit. There's security in, uh, rooted in righteous character. If you jump ahead then to 28-19, but kind of keep your finger in chapter 12 there. Sorry, I probably said that too late. <laughs> Tricked you, sorry. Uh, 2819, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Okay, what's, what's similar between 1211 and 2819 there?
Yeah, so the first, land who, or first line, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. It's the same in both. Frivolity, yeah, the worthless pursuits. Uh, do you notice a difference, though, there between the two? Dan does. Yeah, plenty of poverty. It's a, a memorable turn of phrase there. Yeah, so, so one focuses on the character. They lack sense. And there's following these characters. Those against rich quitting. We refer instead to work on the uh, Just moving forward a little bit, 1423. Uh, that was 12, 11 to 12, and 28, 19. And then 1423, uh, similarly, says in all toil, there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. In all toil, uh, it's saying in all kinds of strenuous labor, there's profit. Um, what is profit? In, in the Bible, this word for profit means something to be left over or excess. So it's like you've, you've covered all your costs, you have enough to eat, and there's something left over that you can sell in the market or that, that um, you can sort of build some wealth out of that. And so it's saying through strenuous labor, all kinds of strenuous labor, there's going to be something left over. And in a sense, that's what all of our work in a variety of ways is doing, is it's getting the natural world and its systems to produce excess that we can live off of. Okay? There's not just enough seeds so that the plant can self-seed itself, but there's enough left over that we can eat it as well. Right? Um, the cow not only produces enough milk for the calf, but also that we can milk the cow and have milk to drink ourselves, um, something left over. What's the contrast there, though, in 1423? On the one hand, you have uh, strenuous labor that leads to profit. On the other hand, mere talk tends only to poverty. Okay, we looked at words a couple times uh, a, a, a month or two ago, and words are important in Proverbs, and words do things, but here it's talking about mere talk. We have a modern proverb along these lines. Can anyone know it? Talk is cheap. Yeah. And that's what Proverbs is getting at here. Talk is cheap. Um, maybe you've been in work contexts like this, where there's people who just talk, and they have all kinds of ideas, but it's saying getting on with it and actually doing something produces profit. <laughs> uh, just talking about doing things doesn't actually get things done. The rubber's got to hit the road at some point. One more here, 22, uh, 29. 22, 29 says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. What's 22, 29 commending to us? It's saying that we should focus on craftsmanship above ambition. Uh, or Dorothy Sayers puts it slightly different. Uh, the worker's first duty is to serve the work. In a sense, rather than focusing on uh, 
ambition moving up the ladder in whatever career you're in, you should focus on being good at the job that you're called to do. Do you see a man skillful in his work, a skilled craftsman, an artisan? Uh, that sort of worker, eventually, it's going to get noticed. He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Uh, I think craftsmanship is a lost value in the modern world, and yet Proverbs is saying focus on craftsmanship, learning your trade above empty ambitions. Another Sayers, uh, Dorothy Sayers quote, um, she was like uh, friends with C.S. Lewis, kind of that crowd, and then wrote mystery novels, but then also wrote essays, if you're not familiar with Dorothy Sayers. Uh, she has one about, uh, uh, on work. She says, we should ask of enterprise, not will it pay, but is it good? Of a man, not what does he make, but what is his work worth? Of goods, not can we induce people to buy them, but are they useful things well made? Of employment, not how much a week, but will it exercise my faculty to the utmost? She's kind of targeting a number of levels there, but especially that, that middle part. Uh, so often in our world, it's can we induce people to buy this? Okay, yeah, it's not a great product, but if we come up with good enough marketing, can we sell it? Um, or oftentimes, um, this is going astray, but uh, uh, the kids can scold me about it later, that uh, pharmaceutical companies oftentimes will develop a new drug, and rather than comparing it in tests against other products on the market already, they compare it against nothing. Okay, so yeah, our drug does slightly lower your blood pressure or whatever, stop heart attacks more than absolutely nothing, but comparing it to other products already on the market, maybe it's not even a great product, but we'll just have the marketing take care of that and we'll sell it. Uh, can we induce people to buy it? But Dorothy Sayers, are they useful things, useful things well made? So Proverbs commends to us craftsmanship, focusing on our skills in our work over ambition. And then uh, an, another aspect, so this is kind of the, the big idea is that wealth, uh, no, work leads to wealth, uh, good, honest work, and then the third idea is planning. Uh, it may not surprise you that the book of Proverbs that focuses on being wise tells us that it's important to plan in our work, that it's important to plan. Uh, 2427 tells us, prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. That's 2427. Uh, what's the idea here? Okay, again, thinking about um, the way people lived in ancient Israel, oftentimes they had these little villages that were tended to be on a hilltop, and it was a you know, small family unit that would have done it, or a couple families, and then the farmland surrounding it. And what this proverb is saying, 24, 27, is prepare your work outside, get the fields ready, plant your vineyards, plant your crops. When those are growing and start producing food, and you have something to live on, then once everything's ready in the field, after that, build your house. Uh, and probably house is not meaning build your physical thing that you're going to sleep in at night, but rather... Um, uh, your household, servants, family, those sorts of things. So it's saying plan ahead. Don't make the first thing you do go and hire employees and then try and figure out if you actually have a product. But 
figure out, okay, do we have a sustainable product here? Do we have something valuable to do? Is this job going to pay the bills? Those sorts of things. Then you start building out from that. Um, this is God's word, and so we should trust it. I, we need to be a little cautious here because we do live in a modern, uh, in an age where the cost of housing and those sorts of things is so high that if you think, okay, I need to own a house and be established in a career before I get married and start building a household, you're going to be too old to build a household at, at a certain point. And so you have to have some balance here. So there needs to be a sense of, on the one hand, can we actually buy food? Can we live? But on the other hand, recognizing, um, I guess the Christmas carol is the uh, uh, counterexample there. Remember, Scrooge keeps putting off his engagement until his business gets a little bit better, a little bit better. Um, and, and, and that, you could take the proverb too far. That's what I'm trying to say here. Uh, planning. And a number of the Proverbs we already looked at uh, uh, reflect on this theme of planning as well. Two more, uh, two more Proverbs here uh, on, the, on the theme of work. 27.18 helps us with one of the big questions about work. What should our attitude towards our bosses be? 27.18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. But guards maybe is not the best translation there. We capture the sense a little bit better if we, submit, if we uh, stick a tens in instead of guards. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. Whoever attends to his master will be honored. Okay, it's drawing a parallel between how you tend a fig tree. Okay, it takes pruning. It takes care. The fruit doesn't happen overnight. It develops over the season. It takes time. It takes watering, all those sorts of things. And then eventually you eat from its fruit. And it's drawing a, a, a parallel there between the attitude that workers should have towards their masters or towards their bosses in our modern language, that if you attend to your master, you will be honored. It's not saying day one, if you're nice towards your boss, you're going to be honored. But it's saying over time, like a fig tree, if you care for and attend to your boss, you try to help them, and you prop them up even at times when it's necessary, and you're patient, over time, that relationship will pay off. Again, Proverbs is talking about the way things are meant to work, and so there's all sorts of complications to that. Uh, we're, you know, in the mornings, we're in Exodus. Obviously, Israel attending to the Pharaoh's desires doesn't lead to the Pharaoh being nicer over time. So there are tyrants, there are exceptions, but it's saying in general our attitude towards our bosses should be similar to our attitude towards fruit trees. It's something we cultivate over time in hopes that it will eventually pay off. The last proverb then, I, I guess are there any other comments or thoughts that you guys are having? Yeah. Uh, Steve, sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, it's a tension because on the one hand, 100 years down the road, having good salmon runs will produce food, but in the short term you also need, you know, your farm produces food for you now, so it's a tension between long-term investment uh, that potentially that has on, on the systems and short-term short -term needs and ba balancing those. Um, yeah, there is always that tension that we have. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. That it takes, it doesn't happen by accident. It takes planning. Uh, in, it doesn't always happen. Covenant children walk away from the church, but in general, diligent instruction of your children in general leads towards children that are, uh, uh, you know, raised in the faith. It takes good, honest work to, yeah, all those sorts of things. Yeah, all those apply. And then in our own lives as well, that um, healthy spiritual lives don't happen by accident. It takes good, honest work. Um, uh, yeah. I think some of my best advice for um, spiritual life is buy a coffee pot with a timer on it so that it helps you get out of bed at whatever time you need to get out of bed to read your Bible in the morning. Start your day off that way. At least uh, for me, that seems to be the trick is I, knowing the coffee's ready. If you can drink Folgers, then I guess your problem's solved and you just put <laughs> Folgers in your cup, it's good to go. But uh, yeah, I think Kai and then Austin. Kai, you had a comment or you were just raising your hand? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Some people have to cross train then, um, but food still needs to come from somewhere. Um, and yeah, it's a. Because we're, actually, and I, I set us up for this as well, because talking about Genesis 2, that our job is to work and guard the garden. So we're meant to work the land, but also protect the land. Uh, and even in Genesis 1, there's kind of this balance that we're given all of the fruit of the trees to eat, humans are, but then it says, and also the birds and the beasts also eat that. And so there needs to be this balance between don't take so much that there's not left for the birds and the beasts, uh, but also humans are meant to eat. And so there's these, these balances back and forth. Um, my gut instinct is massive factory farms in the Midwest are not better for the environment than the way farming happens here. And so it, it seems like if you get rid of all the farms here, there's a payoff that's a big drag somewhere else that's happening in an unhealthy way. Um, and so trying to balance that, of, and, and then in terms of also um, not trying to avoid good, honest work is an important part of um, if you farm in a way that's trying to avoid work, it tends to be cutting corners in ways that aren't good for the broader ecosystem. And so not being afraid of 
putting in good, honest work seems to lead to a way of farming that's healthy for the land as well. So there, there is these balances that we need to have. So I, I think on the one hand, humans are put in and we're told to have dominion over the land, and that means making decisions about how to use the land. And sometimes that's decisions where it's like, well, this stream in particular is not going to be a salmon spawning stream because we need this area for something else. But we should be taking into account all those other factors and long-term implications as well. So yeah, wisdom, uh, I guess that's Proverbs we're talking about wisdom. It's not just there's an abs clear right and wrong. It's saying there's complexities that we need to get, navigate here of balancing these different factors. Um, in terms of that, yeah. Good, good, good comments, guys. Austin, I think you had one as well. Yeah. 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 I think, um, and it's, we hear wealth in a different context, or in a different, in our context, where you have people, apart from kings of major empires like the Pharaoh and the king in Babylon, there would never be a situation where you have someone that has, you know, a thousand times as much as the person who lives next door to him. And yet we live in this world where there's, you know, amounts of money that we can't even understand what it means to have that much money. And we hear that as, you know, so if you hear Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk that that's what being wealthy means, then it's hard to, you know, is that what Proverbs is saying? If we all work hard, we're all going to be the next Bill Gates or whatever? And no, that's not what it's saying. But in general, when it's talking about wealth and pro prosperity, it's meaning you have sufficient means to cover your debts, and you have extra means so that, like, picking up other themes from the Old Testament, uh, you can act as a kinsman redeemer when your relatives fall into debt, that you're able to help them out because you have excess to do those sorts of things. So it's a much more chastened vision of what wealth would look like, if that makes sense. Um, I, I think maybe that helps balance some of that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good question. Let's turn to our very last proverb then for the night. Uh, 1626, Proverbs 1626. A, a worker's appetite works for him, his mouth urges him on. A worker's appetite works for him, his mouth urges him on. Okay, what's this proverb saying? It's saying that we should harness our primal urges and desires rather than deny them, and that should be a motivation for our work. A worker's appetite works for him, his mouth urges him on. Uh, John Muir calls this the bread problem. Uh, if you know John Muir, he likes hiking in the mountains, but you got to get bread from somewhere, and so you got to have a job, okay? That's motivating him to do work. And Proverbs 16, 26 is saying a worker's appetite works for him. What's interesting, though, well, I mean, that's interesting in and of itself. It's, that is a motive for our work, that, to pay the bills. And so if nothing else, that's a good reason to go to work, is to pay your bills. Uh, what's interesting is Proverbs 53.11. Uh, no, sorry, that's not a thing. Isaiah 53.11. 
Isaiah 53, 11. We're in the context in Isaiah 53 of the famous servant uh, song, uh, uh, which is, is well known to many of us. But in 53, 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What's interesting, it doesn't come out in the English translation, but out of the anguish of his soul, it's the same word that Proverbs 16:26, a worker's appetite works for him. It's this idea of the, the desires or the drive of the soul, the need of the soul. In the context of the servant psalm, it's experienced as anguish, uh, burden, uh, as it were. In terms of the worker, the appetite is also a burden, but simply for food. What's interesting then, connecting these together, is Isaiah 53 is telling us that the servant, which is pointing forward to Christ, out of the appetite, to use the same word from Proverbs, of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, he shall bear their iniquities. That there it's saying that the servant, Christ, his base motive is not simply the mouth, that sort of appetite that Proverbs talks about there, but it's this drive, this appetite, to rescue those, uh, to make the many accounted righteous, to rescue those uh, that he is sent to rescue, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so it's interesting then, it's connecting this theme of work in Proverbs with this larger theme of Christ's drive to rescue uh, uh, those of us who are in bondage and he'd rescued to bear our iniquities. And so Christ's work is connected to our work and then coming back around to Genesis 1 and 2 that we talked about earlier, we need to see Christ's work in that larger context of the work that God does initially to create and the work that God gives humans to do. And then, of course, humans are put in God's garden to work it in obedience to God's word, but they decide we'll do things our own way, and they try to put the garden under new management, and everything goes sideways, and it all falls apart. And so then, uh, do you remember what the curse is that Adam, uh, the curse on Adam's work? What's that? Work is going to be harder. That's right. Do you remember specifically what it says? That's right. Thorns and thistles. And in Proverbs 15, 19, the way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, okay? The curse on work is like a hedge of thorns in front of the sluggard, but the path of the upright is a level highway, okay? So our work in the world, we're meant to be, uh, to work and to guard the garden. Humans rebelled. Their work is now cursed, and so thorns come up instead of, or in the midst of what they plant and what they're trying to grow, for the sluggard, it's like a hedge of thorns. For Christ, whose appetite drives him to give himself up and bear our iniquities. And what does he wear on his head when he's crucified? I bet one of our kids knows. A crown of thorns. The curse on Adam's work is woven into a 